We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to the Money Matters podcast. I'm Laura Suter and as ever, I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. Hello, everyone. This is a very special episode because we're celebrating and I feel like I need cake and candles, but I don't have any of that. But it's our 50th episode. Can you believe it? I actually can't. It feels like it's gone very quickly and that we haven't recorded 50 of these episodes, but... The stats don't lie. And we started our Money Matters campaign just over two years ago with the aim of breaking taboos. So making it not only okay to talk about money, but making it really commonplace and everyday. Because we like to talk about money and we're hoping that it makes you feel a lot more comfortable because it has been a really difficult couple of years financially for lots of people. And maybe this pod's answered some of your questions, helped you feel more comfortable and confident with your money. So for this 50th episode, we thought we'd not only look back at some of the great guests that we've had on the pod so far, but also we're going to hear from a brilliant broadcaster, author and campaigner on gender and equality, body image and mental health. Yes, we'll hear from the brilliant Natasha Devon shortly. And there's no coincidence at all that she's also a presenter on LBC, which has also been enjoying its own 50th celebrations. Some nice synchronisation there, I like it. (laughs) Um, Natasha's got some really fascinating insights into how teenage girls view the gender pay gap. So definitely stay tuned for that. But as Laura said earlier, talking about money is gradually becoming less taboo, possibly because there are more podcasts like this one around, possibly because the cost of living crisis has given us all something in common. Um, because I think it's it's uncomfortable to talk to people about money if you think that they've got more of it than you, if they're not struggling in the same way as you. And of course, because everybody's money hasn't been stretching as far, it has given us sort of license to talk about money in a way that maybe we haven't before. Yeah, I think the really positive outcome of this financial nightmare that many people have been living through in the past couple of years is that money chat has become normal chat. People will talk about how much their mortgage is going to go up by or how much their energy bills increased by or how they're tackling the cost of living crisis, ways to save money. I know that if I think about my kind of WhatsApp chats with groups of friends, there's much more kind of people sharing tips in there and people, you know, sharing deals or ways to save money. However, I think you really tap into a good point there where there's still a taboo because obviously different people are at different income levels and being impacted by the cost of living crunch in a really different way. For some people, they've seen their costs go up, but they can easily absorb them and they're maybe even still saving money each month, where for other people, it's had a real impact on their life. And I think there still is a lot of awkwardness around that when you think about friends at different income levels or different positions or family members kind of talking about how the cost of living has impacted them, but just talking about money more generally. I've certainly had a lot more conversations about money with some really good friends that I've been friends with for years. We've been through so much. We had our kids at the same time. You know, we we had those sleepless nights at the same time. We've talked about, you know, 
who and and um, terrible twos and, and just about everything, sex lives. But money, until recently, hasn't been something that we've spoken about. Um, for one of our podcasts, Ellie Gibson, one half of the comic duo The Scummy Mummies, the fact that the confessional they did at the end of all their comedy shows covers just about any subject but money is fascinating when we think about how society treats money. So for anyone who doesn't know, so basically at the end of our show, we give all the audience a card and a pen and we ask them to share like a scummy mummy confession. And it's usually a sort of story of parenting failure. Um, And we get some really, oh, some things that are far too filthy to say in this, on this platform. People might be eating their breakfast. Do you know what I mean? Probably too much too much but um i'll I'll be honest we we do have a lot of common themes and and money i would say probably is not one of them actually and i think that's quite interesting isn't it is that people were quite seem quite happy to talk about their their hangovers or their sex life or their marital problems or their terrible children but actually no i don't think money does come up and i wonder if that's because you know as helen was just saying i wonder how much of that is to do with the fact that 99 percent of our audience is women and and we do still have a sort of Um, social stigma around talking about it I'm not sure and I think just what she was saying there what the pair of them were saying on the podcast episode that we did last year just really resonated with me because it is about that taboo that money has been one of those subjects that we haven't felt able to share you know in the same way as we talk about all other aspects of our lives And I think that has been changing, as you were saying, things like money saving tips and that kind of thing, that has become far more commonplace. But I do think that she's right as well. Maybe it's because their audience is made up of so many women and women just have never spoken about money in the same way that that maybe men have. And I think also sometimes people think about talking money involving you saying exactly how much you earn or how much is in your bank account or whether you've got savings. But actually, talking about money can be so many different things. It can be, you know, sharing the success of asking for a pay rise at work and encouraging your friends to do it. It can be saying, I found this great savings account that's got this good interest rate, or I found this great deal here. Um, It's about kind of sharing information, but it doesn't mean that you have to reveal absolutely everything about yourself, because there's very few people out there that want to reveal all of those details I mean I talk about money all day long and I wouldn't want to come on here and say this is how much I earn this is much how much I have in savings or debt or how much my mortgage is I think that's uncomfortable for lots of people Um, but I don't think talking about money needs to necessarily involve revealing all no it is a really personal thing Um, I suppose because we see it almost as a reflection of ourself, our own self-worth. And one of my episodes um, that I I really loved uh, was about lifestyle creep because it really resonated with me because it's so easy to want more, to look at what other people have and think, why don't I have that? And here's what Stacey Lohman from Claro Wellbeing had to say. There's a lot of research that suggests how we feel about our finances is a lot more influenced by where we think we stand relative to others rather than, you know, the actual amount of what we earn or or how much we have in our bank account. And 
social media and the effective advertising techniques used on social media intentionally amplify this effect. So they make the latest trends more desirable, more attainable, more accessible. And then you've got that alongside innovations in financial services. So it's a frictionless process. You know, you're on your social media and within a couple of clicks, it's connected to your bank account. It's already got autofill for all your personal details. So then it's suddenly the thing you wanted to buy is on your doorstep, potentially on the same day. So there's barely a moment in that process for you to take a breath and think, is this actually a thing that I want to buy and that I can afford to buy? And then you have, you know, the physiological effect too. So you get the dopamine hit. You know, we're all aware of like the immediate highs of instant gratification. And so it feels great and you want to do it again. So it's really easy for all of us, especially through social media, to indulge in that lifestyle creep and excessive consumption. I love this concept of lifestyle creep. I've always been slightly obsessed with it, partly because, I mean, that episode, particularly doing that interview with her, really laid bare some some shortcomings in my own finances. <laughs> but there's definitely that thing of keep not necessarily keeping up with the Joneses, but that element of, well, they can afford that and they do that, or they're going to this place or buying this thing. But I, I can probably afford that as well. And actually, I think quite often in life, you need to sit back and think, is that going to make me happy? Do I really want that just because someone else has got it or, or you know, made me aware that it exists? And I think at the moment, tackling that lifestyle creep is one of the best ways that we can all make ourselves richer by not spending that money on something that actually we might not need um, is definitely a way to boost your income. But I say that as someone who last week bought a bread maker. So I think we can all agree that's not an essential purchase. And I hope that I'm going to use it lots, but... Danny, I want you to hold me accountable and come back in six months' time and check whether I still am baking my own loaves. Well, I expect you to bring some into the offices when I'm <laughs> down in London in a few days' time. That I love bread. I absolutely love bread. That is a downfall. But I think what she also said about, you know, it's really easy in in a cold winter's evening when you're feeling a bit fed up when you're thinking that you don't want to put the heating on and you're seeing pictures my sister is the worst at this because she doesn't have kids and she lives the most amazing lifestyle she's always traveling and I get to that sort of eight o'clock at night and I'm thinking why aren't I there and it would be so (laughs) easy to just book a holiday and do exactly um, what uh, what we were hearing there from Stacey, just to to hit the button and stick it on credit without really thinking through the consequences. You know that I am such a big fan of holidays. I will never talk you down from booking a holiday, even if it makes no financial sense. <laughs> but I know what you mean. I think that social media envy, you have to remember that you're basically seeing a highlights reel of someone's life and you're also not seeing the credit card statements or the bank account behind that lifestyle, all the freebies that so many influencers get. Definitely important to bear in mind. But what I've really loved about Uh, some of our 50 episodes is busting myths. And one of the big ones is that common law marriage is a thing and that you have rights. Um, We spoke to TikTok's legal queen, Tracy Maloney, about this, and she had some great insights. There is no such thing as a common law marriage. So essentially, if you are the person within that relationship 
that is in agreement to say staying at home and therefore giving up your career. Or perhaps you have come to the relationship without any assets, so you don't own your own house and you agree to move into your partner's house. You are really vulnerable, really vulnerable. Um, because if the relationship breaks down, then ultimately you'll walk away with nothing. You have no rights to that person's property if it's just in their name. Um, even if you've paid all the utility bills, let's say, if you have you know, furnished the home and decorated the home, you will still have no rights to that property in the event the relationship breaks down. And I think that's where people need um, a better understanding of their rights. They assume that this common law marriage exists and it doesn't. It's an absolute myth. That was such a brilliant episode. I mean, we had a TikTok queen and a lord on that episode. I mean, it doesn't get better than that, Laura. It's quite hard to beat, but I think maybe we have beaten it and we will do in the future for sure. And we definitely want to hear from all of you about what you might want from our next 50 episodes. Do let us know. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or the artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> Prince Squiggle. I, I think X is is kind of a, a similar vein, isn't it? Um, we are at AJ Bell Money Matters, and we'd love to hear from you. But on with this episode, Natasha Devon is a broadcaster, author and campaigner. She spends a lot of time going into schools and universities and talking about body image, mental health, gender and equality. And she's been talking to Danny about changing perceptions among young girls about women's rights and the gender pay gap. Natasha, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us on Money Matters. Um, we're celebrating our 50th episode and LBC, where you present a show on Saturday evening, is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. Um, I mean, that is an incredible age for LBC to have reached. Um, how do you find it? Well, I mean, I think it's important to give the context here of presenting on LBC has been my dream job since I was about 15, um, which I know is slightly unusual. But um, I grew up in a house with two brothers and one TV set. And my mum had a kind of democratic approach to what got on to be put on the TV, as in the majority ruled. So I've got two younger brothers who just wanted to watch Power Rangers endlessly. And I never got to watch what I wanted to watch on, on the TV. So I used to take myself to my bedroom and I could just about get LBC because it was a London based radio station back in the day. And I grew up in Essex and I could just about get it on the FM radio. And to the extent that my teachers in sixth form used to tease me that I used to come in every morning and be like, last night on the radio, there was this person talking about this. And <laughs> I was obsessed with it. And so then, yeah, fast forward to oh, a terrifying number of years later, um, and I'm now presenting on it. And I wish I could go back and tell my 15 year old self <laughs> that this happened. Um, but it's it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. I um I always said right from the beginning that I wanted to create a show where we elevate nuance. And I feel like having been there three years, we've now got to that place where the people calling in have really thought about it before they pick up the phone. So I'm I'm chuffed with that. So what would you say is 
the most thought-provoking conversation that you've had with your listeners over the last six months? Because it's been a pretty tumultuous six months. Yeah, um, I think, you know, obviously we are discussing a lot the um, Israel-Palestine crisis, humanitarian crisis at the moment, and that's something where emotions are running incredibly high. But we've had some really thoughtful contributions from Northern Irish callers who have lived through a conflict which is not the same but seemed similarly unsolvable. Um, and now have, I guess, enough emotional distance to look back and identify what worked about that and whether there are any transferable lessons. And I've learned a lot from listening to them. And people are incredibly honest with you. And I would imagine that cost of living crisis has been something that you have talked about a lot. And you must have heard some really heartrending tales from people who've, who've been struggling the last year. Yeah, the tales of, of people who, uh, there's two groups of people I think that have the, the most emotional impact with me. First of all, it's parents who are struggling to provide for their children, but also people who live alone. And I think they are so often missed out, particularly in the political rhetoric. You know, politicians are always talking about hardworking families because they know that will tug on the heartstrings. But the fact of the matter is that many people can't afford to support themselves without more than one income. And there was one guy in particular who he was really cheerful about it, which I think made it worse. He was talking about how he was, you know, boiling water for a wash and all these concessions that he'd made, you know, going to the supermarket at a certain time to get cut price tins to try and cobble together a dinner and not having the heating on and even sometimes not having the lights on. I mean, he was living like a mole, basically, um, to try and make ends meet. And that really upsets me as well. I want to move on um, a bit now away from what you do with LBC, because you use your show, your position, your platform to work for change. And we're obviously talking particularly to women on this podcast. And you, you deal with issues like mental health, body image, and inequality. And clearly that's not something that just affects women, but it does affect a lot of women. Why did you decide to, to really push here? Well, I've, I've been going into schools now since 2008. Um, and initially it was because I was newly in recovery from mental illness myself. And I think actually, if I'm honest, it was, I'd lost a lot of years, what was supposed supposed to be the best years of my life, according to everyone, you know, my late teens and, and early twenties. And it was about making that loss mean something. Um, I wanted to extract some value from those lost years, but then after a while, first of all, I got really bored um, of talking about myself. And secondly, I was starting to see patterns and I was thinking, OK, different groups of people are being affected by mental health issues in different ways. And so this must have to do with society and the way different groups of people experience the society that we live in and, and that we've created. So that's what drew me into campaigning and realizing that actually you can't have an interest in mental health without also taking an interest in things like racism and homophobia and misogyny. They are completely interconnected. 
Your mental health issues, did you experience a, a lot of that kind of misogyny? Did you experience inequality? Is that part and parcel of, of why you were affected so much? I definitely experienced people being dismissive. It, it was very difficult for me to speak honestly about my mental health issues. You have to bear in mind that my recovery journey began uh, maybe when I was about 22. So th- this would have been 2004. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to do the, the maths <laughs> in my head. Um, it was a radically different time when there was a lot more stigma and a lot less understanding about mental health issues and how they affect people. And people were quite dismissive of me once I did work up the courage to to tell people what was going on with me I remember one person in particular saying well um every every woman experiences eating issues at some stage um and that's true but not every woman goes through eight years of bulimia nervosa like I had and I would like to think that times have changed, but unfortunately, the the statistics don't bear that view out. There was a a recent report which showed that young women in particular are much more likely to be told that they are exaggerating or hysterical when they speak about their mental health issues. Because in some ways, things have changed. We are now more comfortable it's more acceptable to talk about things like mental health issues eating disorders the menopause but I think on the other hand social media is such a massive part particularly of teenagers lives I've got two teenage girls and I know that I I worry about the kind of imagery that they're seeing and how that impacts them Hmm. so I, I suppose for the the kids that you're talking to now, I bet that comes up a lot, does it? It doesn't, but not because it shouldn't. It's it's really interesting. So this happened a few years ago now. Um, there's an exercise that I do in schools where I ask young people to identify what's in their stress bucket. And let's say eight years ago, they would always say social media. And then over time that started to change and they were talking about academic pressure, feeling like they had to keep up with their friends. Um, They were identifying things which you can see social media plays a role in, but they weren't actually saying the word social media. And then I worked out what it was. And it was because that cohort of young people were born into this world of TikTok and smartphones And it's so embedded into the way that they live that they've forgotten to notice it. So it'd be a bit like if I said to you, what impact do you think cars have had on your mental health? There's an answer to that question, and it's probably a very interesting answer. But you probably need to go and research what life was like before because you've got no basis for comparison. And so what, you know, the the tact I'm taking with this group is, is first of all, acknowledging the positives of social media, because you don't want to demonize it. And it's very important to them. They don't go online, they are online. And that's an important distinction. But also teaching them to notice how it's affecting them. And what was really interesting is that the way they think about society has changed. The way they think about gender equality has changed. 
and the way they think about women's rights and things like the gender pay gap has changed. What have you found and did it surprise you? I was really hopeful about five years ago that all young people were on board with gender equality. But since then, what has happened is you've seen the rise of these influencers who what they're doing is they're targeting vulnerable young people, mostly boys, but not exclusively. And there's a, a very distinct pattern to it. So, so what they do is they say, hey, are you anxious? Do you feel like the world isn't working? And most people would answer yes to that question. And then they say, well, there was a time before you can remember, before your parents can remember, even perhaps before your grandparents can remember, around about the 1950s, where everyone was really happy. <laughs> and you know, they, they've got no proof that that's not true. Everyone was really happy. And the reason that everyone was really happy was because gender roles were prescribed. And here's some really reductive and erroneous sort of pseudo evolutionary biology that shows you that men and women are supposed to live this way. So the reason you're anxious and unhappy is because of feminism. And that's how they hook them in. And that's why there was a, a study recently that showed that Gen Z are more likely than Gen X or millennials to think that feminism has gone too far um, and that, for example, the pay gap doesn't really exist. And I find that really terrifying. So I know you've written a book, um, Adult Fiction, to try and engage young people in that debate. Why did you do that? And, and what's the book about? My book's called Babushka and it's set in the year 2000 and it's about a, a teenage girl in the year 2000. I was a teenage girl in the year 2000. And um, part of the reason that I wrote it is because I feel like if we keep reinventing these problems and talking about them as though they're new, then we will never get to the bottom of them, but we'll also uh, we we kind of lean into that rhetoric that says that, you know, young people now are snowflakes and they can't take a joke and, um, you know, they'll get offended over anything. Issues around consent, misogyny, victim blaming, these things are not new. <laughs> they very much existed in the year 2000. The year 2000 is also when many people, myself included, learned how to be a pick me girl. And this is something that is a, very particularly a problem with women my age and maybe a little bit slightly older as well, where we were taught that there was honor in not being like other women. And I remember there was a time when I just wouldn't engage with music or art or literature by women for women. I wouldn't even wear the color pink because I took such pride in not being like other women. And I've had to unlearn that because I've realized that what we were being taught is to um, turn on the sisterhood and sisterhood is such a powerful thing. Of course, you know, the status quo is afraid of it. Has that changed then, do you think? Yeah, well, in terms of um, a lot of the women I work with at LBC in terms of uh, the, the production and researcher team, they're women in their 20s. And I watch the way that they support one another. There's two things, in fact, that I've noticed about women that age. First of all, they're not afraid to take up space. I never see them trying to make themselves smaller, which is such a difference from, from women my age. 
And second of all, the way that they raise each other up and they're happy for each other's successes, they're cheerleading each other. So different from my generation, because we were taught that there's only a small slice of the pie. And if you don't get it, another woman will. I must confess, I'm a lot older than you, but a lot of what you've just said really resonates with me and just the interactions over the years that I've had with some female colleagues. Some have been incredibly supportive, some less so. Going back to the young women that you're talking to in schools and this issue with equality and the gender pay gap, when you have discussions with them about this, what do they say? It's it's really difficult because one of the things that I'm trying to do is to teach them um, scientific literacy, because ultimately we can argue, for example, with the pay gap, if you look at the statistics in a certain way, it looks like the pay gap doesn't actually exist. If you look at it in another way, it's very clear that it does. So ultimately it's down to who do they believe more, you know, who's got the nicest studio and the best pie chart and, and whatever. So rather than getting into the weeds of that and just hoping that they'll believe me more than, you know, this influencer. What I do is I try to teach them scientific literacy because I think if I can embed that skill, then they're going to look at the information in a different way. So, for example, one of the ways that I do that is I say to them, um, can I put can I ask you to put your hand up if your house starts uh, if your house number is even if your address starts with an even number, raise your hand. And about half of them do because that's how numbers work. And then I say, right, statistically, the people with your hands up, you are more likely to do better in your exams than the people with their hands down. And that's a very good example of correlation because one was always going to do better than the other because that's just how numbers work. But there's no causal element to that. Obviously, we're not saying to the people who live in a house with an odd number on the door, right, to do better in your exams, you need to move. So it's just teaching them, you know, think things like that and to look at things like sample size and who's making money out of this study, et cetera, et cetera, and how are things funded. That kind of thing, I think, is much more useful than arguing. So in terms of how you feel about women's rights, about equal pay, about dealing with a lot of these societal issues, when you talk to these Young women, are you hopeful that we're on the right journey or are you worried that we're absolutely not? Um, I, I'm always wary of sort of placing my hope with young people because the young people I work with are wonderful. But then I also see how problematic it is to go, okay, well, people my age and older, we destroyed the economy, we destroyed the planet, we've made a mess of things. And it's okay, because you're great, and you'll clean it up. Um, (laughs) So as much as the young women and a lot of the, the young men that I work with are brilliant, part of my job, I think, as somebody with a little bit of influence, and certainly a platform, is to bring about the structural change that is going to make the world better for them because they can't do it by themselves. What do you think that change needs to be? Well, I mean, for a start, we need to look at housing. I think that's probably the the biggest issue for young people is 
the first of all the impossibility of getting on the housing ladder but i think more pertinently for people that age what's happening to the rental market how competitive it's become and the impossibility of just being able to have your own place and then you know what just imagine how hopeless that would make you feel if you thought well even if i get a really good job and i work really hard I'm not going to be able to move out of my parents' house unless they are able to financially support me to do so. Natasha, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Natasha Devon there. And Laura, I have an absolute treat for you because our confessional is back in business. So I guess my financial confession is also a little bit of an environmental one. Like I like to think of myself as somebody who is as green as I possibly can be and also as careful with money as um, I possibly can be. But my weak spot is books. And I, I know I have a Kindle and I know that I should get them on Kindle, but I think having written a book and worked with a publisher, I know how much goes into the covers. And I just love the feeling of actually having a book in my hand. And I, I just can't stop buying them. My to read list is a tower. And um, yeah, I, I was what, because to write Babushka, I had to go back and sort of immerse myself in um, early 2000s culture. And I was watching some episodes of Sex in the City. And there's one episode where uh, Carrie Bradshaw can't afford a deposit on a flat. And then she works out how much all of her shoes are worth and and works out that it's about 50 grand or something. (laughs) And I thought, I wonder if you worked out how much all of my books are worth, whether, whether I'd be much richer. But clearly it's something that gives you a huge amount of pleasure. Yeah, it it really does. Yeah, I love being surrounded by books. I I love the smell of them as well. I love going to like a musty old library and smelling old books. This is really weird now. You need to stop me talking. (laughs) Brilliant. I am so happy the confessional is back. And I think it's really great when people like Natasha are up for sharing their financial confessions with all of us. And it wouldn't be a 50th episode without one for sure. Don't forget, we'd love it if you shared your financial confession with us. You can contact us in all the usual ways. We're at AJ Bell Money Matters on Facebook, Instagram and X. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so you don't miss out on any of our articles or events. And of course, you can also listen back to any of our 50 podcast episodes wherever you get your podcasts or you'll find them all handily on our website, ajbellmoneymatters.co.uk. That is it for this week. Next time, we're going to be talking side hustles. So how to earn a bit of extra cash, which will certainly come in handy in the run up to Christmas. But till then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.